0: His work, our world, that this idea that God is... And Duncan spoke really compellingly about it last week. That God uh, has a work in the world that he calls us into. And that work, work is the salvation of the world. And who knows that the best placed person to be God's saving agent in your world is you. No one else can be your father's son or daughter... And share God's love in the the way that you can as a son or daughter. No one else can be uh, the colleague that you are when you sit in your office next to somebody else who needs God's love. I thought I'd just um, start by taking you on a little bit of a journey through some interesting images and and mindful of the fact that not everybody here um, and when they listen on the web will be able to see these. I'll just explain these. Here's a a pair of very old, sort of rusted out or worn away spectacles. And as I um, show you these images, I'd like you to kind of begin to latch onto at least one of them to carry with you through the message this morning. These glasses were found in the permafrost in in the north, in the Arctic region, uh, the territories of Canada. As was this pocket watch, miles from anywhere, out in the middle of of a very desolate, uh, windswept island up in the Arctic. This uh, is a a beaded purse uh, that contained a lock of hair And it was also found out there in the permafrost. The story uh, attached to this was that the the young man who who was found deceased with this on his body um, had been given by his relatively new wife a lock of their child's hair that he took away. Um, And he died with this purse from his wife on him. Here's a book. Um, that's one of many that was also up there in the Arctic, in the cold north. A boot that someone wore on an expedition that I'm about to tell you about, also left up there in the permafrost. Some fishing wire, a fishing hook, some needles uh, from the from the officer's... Um, Waters, apparently, of a ship that is stuck up there in the ice. Where I'm going uh, to with this this morning is, um, you know, we've looked at this language of mission from Scripture. And come to see that actually the word that we use for mission is this word, sent. That God is kind of sending us on a mission into the world. Um, And uh, I I just came across this story uh, very recently that I thought served as an interesting kind of analogy um, to what can go wrong when we're on mission. Those articles that I showed you um, came from... uh, a sort of doomed exploratory mission uh, that was looking for what they called the Northwest Passage. So, actually, this thing has a laser pointer on it that I'm going to see if I can use. Uh, Back in the sort of age of exploration, uh, much of what was sort of happening in the world in terms of exploration was coming out of Europe. We understand that. And then... um, We also know that Europeans kind of settled that part of America there. And before uh, we had aeroplanes to help us kind of get around the globe, all sort of transport had to happen by sea, right? And uh, that was fine if you were going from North America there across to Europe there. But there was also a lot happening in this part of the world And so if Europeans or North Americans wanted to access Asia and Russia, they had for many, many years to sail all the way around the American continent and then traverse the Pacific Ocean. But there was this idea that perhaps this almost mythical passage could be um, found between whoops, between that part of the world. So if we look at... It's a bit of a confusing map. I had to try and find one. Yeah, it was sort of a gamble. What, what was going to work better, having Asia in the middle or at, at the edge? But anyway, um, they wondered if they could get somehow through there. And um, in 1840... Uh, a man called John Franklin took an expedition of 129 men uh, up there to try and make it through the Northwest Passage. And as it turned out, not a one returned, actually. They all died. Um, The ships got stuck up there in the ice... Um, Eventually the men abandoned their ships and it seems that in small groups trying to find their way south to a trading station, they ended up all freezing to death out on the tundra and the permafrost and the ice. So you can see uh, it does look like a treacherous bit of ocean there, doesn't it? A lot of the time, particularly back then, there's been a lot of melt since then. Um, But uh, you could only traverse those waters in the warmest months because they would freeze back up again. And um, I like uh, this as a metaphor, as an analogy. Actually, uh, it it serves as a great analogy for, for many things Um, But I like it because it speaks to us of trying to do something new, trying to do something that hadn't been done before, even imagining um, that a new way needed to be found. Um, And there was a question over whether it was possible, over whether you could actually ever get ships through there. And as I've already explained, some people paid a great price trying to work that out. I think um, about what we've been talking about here in this Scent series. One of the things that we've heard Graham say is Jesus is calling us as his church to begin to focus again on what's right in front of us. You know, to be Christians in our offices, to the people that we work with, uh, in our kitchens, to our children as we raise them. To be present as salt and light where we live. Um, There's a lot happening in our world at the moment which could sort of shift our attention from what's very close to us, the here and now, what we can touch, up to sort of the big picture of stuff that's going on in the world. If you think about uh, what's happening geopolitically at the moment, what's happening between Russia and the United States, if you think about what's happening culturally, uh, is uh, Western civilization sort of abandoning Christianity? If you think about what's happening politically in our country, are there parties which can represent uh, what we as Christians uh, understand to be the best values and ethics uh, for all Australians? big questions over those things, Uh, big questions that our minds could go to and could become sort of preoccupying for us. And in the face of all that, uh, we're hearing many people in our midst, and we've had some great guest speakers here, say, actually, God is calling you to do something maybe a little more humble. I mean, it's great to pray, uh, you know, that Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un uh, have a good time together and work things out and we don't bomb each other, yes, that would be really good, not to be nuked. But actually, even as all that's going on, Jesus is calling us to be disciples down at the ground level, at the coalface. And I think that everything that's changing in the big picture actually Makes this message that we've been hearing more important. It brings it in to focus for us. Because as I think about it, you know, lots of people in my world are rejecting Christianity. Sometimes that feels like a rejection of me as well, but there's lots of people, neighbours, friends, who are saying, actually, your religion doesn't work for me anymore. I don't really want to have anything to do with it. Lots of people are also rejecting the institutions that are a part of my faith. They're saying, actually, the church doesn't do anything for me anymore. I I feel let down by it. I feel it's corrupt. I feel it's dropped the ball on too many important issues. And I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I think, you know, as I've said already this morning, some of that's understandable, actually, some of it's unfortunate. But what would be most unfortunate would be if people, in rejecting those things, outright rejected God's love. And can you see how it's possible, maybe it feels a bit risky, to make a differentiation here? Is there a chance, at least, that in rejecting the Christianity that people have experienced, the church that they know or think that they know, they might not actually be rejecting God himself and God's love. It might just be possible. I want to suggest, actually, that it's one of those things that, um, ho- like hoping that we can find a passage through the Northwest, we have to kind of gamble on as 21st century Western Christians, because it would be such a tragedy if people rejected the church, rejected the way that we live our faith out, and sort of as just a part of that process rejected God, if that weren't actually necessary, right? If there was a way through that passage to say, yes, I get that there's stuff about the way that I live my faith out that you're not sure about? I get that the church has let you down, but can you still be compelled by and come to know God's love? Wouldn't it make sense just to throw everything at that and to try and discern whether there is not some gap, some passage through which we could bring Jesus's saving love to a world that really needs it? even if they have issues with the way we live our faith out, even if they've been let down by the church, if there's some small chance that they can still be captured by God's love, I believe that being sent is something like finding our way through this mythical passage in the north. Now, that might be a bit of a daunting uh, sort of suggestion, particularly because I've opened up by saying, The men that I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning all died up there in the ice. We'll just close the meeting and you can go home blessed. Uh, I want to suggest that um, Franklin uh, and his men made some sort of mistakes that are useful for us as we think about that, think about what I've been talking about. But actually, um, we find a bit of a blueprint for how things might be done in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. So if you've got your Bible, I'm going to be kind of dipping in and out of it a little bit. It could be useful for you just to keep me honest, uh, make sure that I'm not making things up along the way. I'm sure you, uh, many of you will know this passage, though, as we go to it. I want to make uh, the case for you this morning that living scent, and that's what we've been talking about, Means not letting our don'ts and do's get in the way of what it is that God wants to do. Very often, as a part of this package of being a Christian, and much of what gets rejected. Uh, when people meet us, I think, is a package of things that we feel like we need to and need not to do, what I'm calling the don'ts and do's of having our faith. And I want to suggest to you this morning that actually it's possible, in fact, I've seen it many times in my life, that those don'ts and do's that we have, those oughts that we think we need to live out of, often get in the way of of God's love actually being able to flow to people. If we pick up um, at the beginning of John chapter 4, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised but his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans." Jesus answered her, "If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water." Now, some of you have some insight into this story and know that Jesus was doing something quite scandalous in this situation. Um, just really by talking to a Samaritan woman. So she picks up on this, doesn't she? She says, actually, you Jews have some do's and don'ts, and you seem to be doing one of the don'ts right now. As a Jewish man, talking to me um, at, as I'm drawing water, I, I have some sort of reason to be suspicious um, of what's going on, but actually to kind of call you on your own code, which says this is a no-no, this is a don't-do, Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women. How can you ask me for a drink, she says. I think it's really instructive and I love it how Jesus actually sort of ignores that, doesn't he? What does he say to her? He downplays these do's and don'ts and instead he goes straight to his concern which is that she should receive this living water from God. So she says, what are you talking to me for? That's a don't. He ignores that and he says, there's something that I want you to have and it comes from God and it's life itself. And if you just had that, nothing else would matter. They go on to have this exchange where Jesus, and some of you will know this story, asks her about her husband. Touchy sort of subject. Particularly if you think about the sort of sexual and religious politics of of that interchange. And she says, I have no husband. So Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, she replies, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kinds of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. After this uh, exchange of do's and don'ts, I think it's interesting how... The Samaritan woman then actually takes it to the baseline issue. So they talk about some sort of surface-level cultural stuff, you know, I don't know if you should really be talking to me, I'm a Samaritan woman. Just the fact that Jesus is willing to engage with her makes her kind of go, actually, let's talk about the fundamentals here. What separates us, she suggests, is the fact that your people say that God is working for you this way, And my people say that God is working over here. And um, Jesus sort of ups the stakes with her. He says um, a time is coming when those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and truth. A time is coming when those who will worship the Father will worship in spirit and truth she sort of reaches for that baseline cause of division between the two of them and jesus again looks to unsettle that he looks to go past that somehow some uh, people have talked about what jesus is doing here as an unsettling of temple spirituality Um, Temple spirituality is a religion that is settled in a particular place with a particular people. Um, It's, uh, in, in light of what we've been talking about over the past few weeks, it's often talked about as being dualistic. So temple spirituality says there are some sacred places like the temple and there are some profane places like outside the temple. There are some sacred days, whether it's Saturday or Sunday that you worship on, And there are some secular days, like the rest of your working weeks. Jesus is moving past that by saying to this woman, hang on a second, let's not dig further into the things that divide us. I want to talk about a time where God is not going to be restricted just to my people in this particular place. And in fact, that time is coming now. And Jesus says things uh, and implies things that for Christians should seem quite sort of second nature, that uh, God isn't confined to one particular place, that God is mobile and free, um, that God is missional, as we've been talking about. If he did live in a temple, he's going out of that temple now through people into the world beyond it. Jesus is talking about a sent spirituality here that is fundamentally not about, um, as Stephen preaches at at his martyrdom, about bricks and mortar, but about God living in people. And Jesus is saying to this woman, really, essentially, I believe that God can live in you. And... What I see Jesus beginning to draw us to here is a revelation of the fact that new kinds of worshippers mean new ways of worship. Unsettling the temple spirituality, not just that he saw in his disciples there in the first century, but the temple spirituality that can become a part even of our lives now, As Christians, the sort of missional impulse of our faith, this idea that God loves the world and sends people out into the world for its salvation and their salvation, should be really fundamental to who we are, and yet it's amazing how often our hearts are drawn back into that kind of temple spirituality paradigm isn't it? I wonder if we're not a bit like the Hebrews who once they were liberated from Egypt longed to go back because of the uncertainty of their situation because there's something safe about knowing if I just do this if I keep making bricks I'll get food if I keep bowing to the right person I won't get beaten Here I am in the desert. Who knows where we're going? Who knows if God's going to turn up? Who knows if we'll get to where we're supposed to be? Who knows if we'll make it to the other side of the desert or the Arctic? Something in our human hearts longs for that sort of security. And even we as Christians in the 21st century can be drawn back into limiting God to only operating in ways that we're comfortable with in the temple that we have set up. There can be something comforting about the do's and don'ts of temple spirituality, but we read here that Jesus is calling us to consider something beyond that. In an effort to introduce the woman that he speaks to to the life-giving water of God, Jesus shows a willingness To move beyond the expectations of the people around him, the cultural expectations of those around him. And uh, this just brings me back to this idea of a gap that could. Exist if we're facing unprecedented times, if it really is the end of Christendom as such in Western society, if doing church the way that we've been doing it isn't going to work anymore, if we are seeing people reject Christianity and reject the church, but there's just a sliver of hope that there is some way still that they could accept God's love, shouldn't we double down on that? even if it means moving beyond some of the categories that we're comfortable with. This is not a new idea to Christian mission, actually. Christian uh, missionaries, particularly in the last um, few decades, have recognised that often Christian mission has made a mess because we've tried to export our culture we've inadvertently exported our culture. We've gone out into the mission field and said to people in Africa or Asia or wherever it is, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. It's really important that you start to dress like us, that you start to worship God in the same way that we do. And untold damage has been done. So we've kind of wised up to the fact that actually... That's not the model that we see from Jesus. In fact, in the person of Jesus, we see God willing to make such compromise for the sake of our coming to know and understand his love that he becomes one of us. And I realise that this gets into sort of sensitive territory for some of us. How much compromise is, is, is too much? Obviously, there's a line there somewhere. But just go with me as we continue to try and chart this course through a Northwest passage. Very often the way we live out our faith, whether we recognise ourselves as missionaries or not, has a lot of cultural baggage to it. We think that we live as Christians, but very often times we're just living as 21st century Australians. Graeme uh, has a story about this, and he can correct it in the footnotes later if I get it wrong. But when he was working for World Vision, I hope I'm not steer, uh, stealing this from a sermon that you're going to preach in the, in the future, Graeme. Uh, he had been doing a fair bit of work in Africa, um, and they bought an African pastor back uh, to Australia and you know he was touring the various churches and that kind of stuff and they got a bunch of the pastors together one night and took him out for dinner and these were the dark days where the Clark family still lived in Victoria. Um, They were suffering on the mission field down there and so in Melbourne if you're bringing uh, someone from out of town out for dinner where do you go? Well, you take them to Ligon Street, right? I don't know if you've eaten on Ligon Street, but it's a great cultural experience where, you know, you kind of get lured into restaurants or talked into going into restaurants and they have just ridiculously large serving sizes. Um, and as Graeme... As I remember Graham telling the story anyway, uh, you know, huge plates of food are coming out. Everyone's in a good mood. They're having a nice meal together. Conversation's flowing. And then... Um, if my memory serves me correctly, it was Graham who noticed that the African pastor was beginning not to be so jovial in their midst. And checking in with him, he he said, you know, is everything okay? And the African pastor said, is this food all for us? And uh, yeah, it is for us. We're not going to be able to eat all this food, are we? No, probably not. So what happens to the leftover food? well, it probably gets thrown out. And in that moment, um, Graham will get a chance to tell this in another sermon and he'll tell it better, you know, the the bottom sort of falls out, really, of the evening, doesn't it? Because the assumptions that we have as 21st century Australian people, that it's fine to eat to excess, that we've got an abundance, so waste doesn't matter, maybe don't sit so well with, a, with an African Christianity of scarcity. And there are so many ways that we risk doing that, presuming that who we are as Christians is who everybody should be as Christians. Very often, our ideas about what constitutes what is sacred and what is secular contextual not always but often and so good missiology these days says you you need to be a student of the culture that you're trying to witness to right i mean that's a crazy idea thinking about jesus actually coming down and living amongst us is is that precedence i think so um, John Stott said towards the end of his life that if Christianity in the West is to survive, Christians need to be what he called the double readers. Yes, we need to read the Bible, but we also need to read culture. Because the, what we presume about what makes sense of the Bible in the world might not make sense anymore. We haven't been close enough to culture to kind of watch that drift happen. There's a story from um, Franklin's sort of ill-fated journey that I think really uh, exemplifies the terror of this. Uh, Besides not really consulting with the Inuit people for the mission, uh, for a long time historians didn't talk to the Inuit people about their experience of these 130 white people going through lands where they actually lived. Um, But uh, it it came back recently that in Inuit history uh, there's a record of in the late 1840s on the southwest coast of King William Island, a small hunting group, native hunting group encountering 30 white men asking for food. The Inuit traded whale blubber and seal meat for a knife. Then they watched as the white men melted the blubber and cooked the meat over it, losing the blood and fat that were considered by the Inuit to be the most nutritious and essential parts. And so here we have these men, still alive, still on the journey to safety, actually encountering people with cultural knowledge that could help them, and then just reverting back to their own limited knowledge one of the things we're wrestling with a bit in our house at the moment as I think about this is um, we've got some families on our street and uh, they all get on really well good people uh, none of them Christians that we're aware of and uh they make a big deal of, of Halloween because it kind of gets the kids connecting with each other and, you know, they'll, they'll have a, a bit of a street party, actually. And I know, if I can throw my wife under the bus, particularly Sherilyn, uh, really struggles with, you know, uh, some of the stuff around Halloween, the aesthetic of it, the parent celebration of witches and that kind of stuff. But yet we both have this conversation with each other every year where we're like what does it mean to be sent here? If we're not getting involved with this, are we just the Christians with our do's and don'ts, with our temple spirituality not going into our world, not being the salt and light? I don't have an answer (laughs) for that but these are the kind of gaps that I think we have to be willing to explore now. Because, how do our neighbours read our lack of willingness to get involved in one of the only things that they do together with their kids? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a real challenge. Living scent means maybe not letting our do's and don'ts get in the way of what it is that God is wanting to do in the people that He cares about. Out in the world, living sent also um, means leaving the familiar behind and trusting the supply of the Holy Spirit. If you uh, read on uh, a little bit from where we were, you'll find that Jesus's disciples have done a bit of a burger run. It, it, It came up in the section that we read already. And um, they return to find Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman. The text says they were surprised. I think that's probably a little bit of a soft word. I'd say they're probably a bit scandalized because they say, Jesus, what are you doing talking to that Samaritan woman? And the text tells us that the woman leaves her water at the well and rushes back to her village. Anyway, like good Jews, uh, uh, food... Is is very important, so the disciples seem to be able to put that to the side and they urge Jesus to eat. Uh, meanwhile, they say, Rabbi, eat something in verse thirty one. And he said to them, Well, I, I have food that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have bought him food? Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to finish his work. The thing about being willing to surrender our do's and don'ts and to be sent in the world is that it positions us to receive the supply of the Holy Spirit on mission, right? Being willing to surrender our do's and don'ts and be sent actually positions us to receive the supply of the Holy Spirit in the field. It would seem, actually, that sometimes our own ideas about what we think we need to do and be to enter into God's work could actually be getting in the way of us going on God's work. What Jesus is saying here is, like, food is important. I'm, I'm grateful for the burger, but actually this is never the main game, is it? And, in fact, by saying... I have food that you know nothing about it is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Jesus is saying the sustenance is there. Anything that we can possibly need will come when we answer the call to be sent into the world. Again, um, to see how it can go wrong, uh I'm just reading a passage written uh, about the Franklin Expedition from a, a book by name by a guy called Roxburgh. He says, The manifest of Franklin's journey is a telling description of what these adventurers understood to be important and necessary for the journey. It captures the narrative in which they lived, a narrative that would destroy them because it made little sense in the environment of the Arctic. Franklin equipped his ships with a 1,200-volume library. You remember that book? the picture of the book, a hand organ that played 50 tunes, a china place place settings and expensive silverware. These early Victorian-era Englishmen took their world with them so important were these elements of normal life in England that they only carried a 12-day supply of coal for their auxiliary a- engines, knowing that the journey would last two to three years. Lodged deep inside them were habits and customs of their world, which determined that what they took with them uh, when determined what they took with them when they abandoned their ship to seek help. Bodies were found out in the ice fields. Uh, in shallow graves with their silverware beside them. Despite their brave commitment to explore a new way through the Northwest Passage, Franklin and his crew went with the assumptions of a 19th century English world and it killed them in the space into which they entered. remember Graham preaching uh, from Luke 10... uh, Recently, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. How much of the potential mission of our lives dies in the ice? Because we feel like we have to lug the whole temple with us everywhere that we go. We feel like every encounter that we have with another person in need of God's love needs to tick off all these boxes that make us a Christian too. We will never be sufficiently resourced in our own strength. But when we trust that in the sending God will supply what we need, heaven is open to us. And I think there's two dimensions to this. There's that sort of cultural and, and, and temple uh, spirituality set of expectations that we could lug around with us, that every interaction that we have with someone who doesn't share our faith has to sort of go through a list of propositional theological points that we place at the centre of who we are. But there's also a resource dimension to it, where we feel like we have to take, you know, all the supplies with us all the time. Whereas Jesus is saying, actually, the most important thing right now is that you go. I will provide for you, but you need to get out into the field. Now, what's, what are the sort of things that we sort of uh, can can feel like we need to be prepared for we might feel like we don't have all the answers yet and that's what stops us from being sent and going we might feel like we don't have the funding and obviously you know there's wisdom here too there's there's also been cases where where christian missions have have not uh, really thought through and not been good stewards and wise about what they take um, but I think you get the point we're making. We might also feel like we're not educated enough to go and you know, we, we, we don't have uh, a, a firm enough grasp of our faith and the Scripture. But Jesus is saying, actually, you need to begin that journey and the education happens on the way. You need to begin that journey of being sent into the world. The resources will be unlocked. Because too many times in our lives, I think, those fears actually stop us from taking the first step. And going uh, from the analogy of of Franklin's um, expedition, there's a good chance that there are things that we need to put down for the sending. And that's one of the things I want to challenge you with as we get to the end this morning, that you won't be able to take everything with you if you're sent some of the objectives of your life might not line up with this superior objective that God is saying, you know, you need to be a missionary first. Sure, have a career, but you're in that you're a missionary if your career isn't a part... So Duncan last week used the language of call and assignment. If your assignment doesn't line up with your call, well, maybe you've got a problem. Oftentimes, thankfully, by the grace of God, uh our assignment has the call in it but something to consider are there items that we're lugging across the ice that we don't need to to go is imperative God will feed and sustain us so living sent might mean leaving the familiar behind and trusting the supply of the Holy Spirit finally living sent means understanding our place is always at the centre of God's plan. On the back of this conversation about food, Jesus says to his disciples, don't you have a saying that it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. We end up reading in verse 38 of chapter 4 that many of the Samaritans from the town came to believe in Jesus because of the testimony of that woman. And as a point of interest, the word uh, ripe in verse 35 where Jesus says they are ripe for the harvest, in Greek is actually white. Um, And the, the suggestion is that Samaritans wore white clothing, actually. So he and the disciples are looking back in the direction that the Samaritan woman went and she's coming back with crowds of people from the village to meet Jesus dressed in white. He's saying, "You've got this saying about the harvest. This is the harvest that I care about." You guys are thinking about food. I am concerned with the being on the mission, you know? And we're looking here at the, the harvest that really matters uh, in the sight of God, people with great need people who need God's love, people for whom the message of love, salvation and forgiveness is welcome. Jesus is calling his disciples to see with the eyes of God. In God's eyes, the most important thing that can ever be going on, more than the seasons of their lives, is the season in which he wants to bring people into his great love and so Jesus says to us as well as his disciples 2,000 years later he is sending us this is our mission he is sending us I might get the band up and um, as they begin to play and uh, we'll join them in singing soon I want you to have a think about these articles. I'm going to just flick through them again. Think about Captain John Franklin and the 130 men that never saw their family again. A mission that was aborted on the field. We have faith that God's mission won't fail I think the question is, are we going to be a part of it? God is inviting us into his mission. God is saying there is a work of love to do in the world. Would you join me in it? Calvin, I'm just having some issues here, flicking through those okay that's one of the books from the 1500 title library Lost in the Ice you know is God sort of speaking to your heart and saying actually there's something you need to put down to be sent, there's something that's holding you back taking up the mission. And so living sent means these things this morning for us, not letting our don'ts and do's get in the way of what it is that God wants to do. What God wants to do in the lives of people around you, it means leaving the familiar behind and trusting the supply of the Holy Spirit. It means understanding our place is always at the centre of God's plan. If you could hear God's voice in your ear, there's a good chance whatever you're doing, he'll be saying, remember the harvest. Remember those people around you, those people that I love, those people that I'm relying on you to bring into my love. stone christian resources it is deemed copyright and may be used by-